Awesome. Okay, so there was a fiery man in the Godmobile that looked, sounded a lot like Jesus, like kind of driving this thing, right? Um, we also saw last week, God asked Ezekiel to do some kind of weird things, like some interesting street theater, right? And because of the vision that God gave Ezekiel, this giant heavenly opening, um, Ezekiel is willing to be obedient. Um, God even tells Ezekiel that people aren't going to listen. Um, but he has to do this anyway, and it's that vision that drives Ezekiel into obedience and persistence. Um, so we understand why he's willing to kind of do these strange things that God is asking of him. Um, frankly, they probably sounded strange and seemed strange to the people of his time. Um, God was using these public demonstrations so that people would hopefully see, hear, and remember what he wants to say to them. So this week, we have more street theater coming. Ezekiel is called to shave his head, which is a sign of mourning, and shave his beard, which for priests was a sign of disgrace. And he was told to save some of the hair in his cloak, which he's going to burn later. Um, and then he's going to take the rest of it and divide it into thirds. And he's going to burn a third. Um, he's going to slash a third with a sword, and a third he's going to scatter to the wind and then slash after it with the sword some more. Um, so again, we've got some kind of strange-sounding stuff going on. These actions all represented the type of judgment that God was going to send on the people. And judgment is coming. There's no avoiding it. But here's what I was thinking as I read these verses. And I was asking myself, what am I willing to do for God? Am I willing to do something that makes me look foolish? What if I'm called to do something different from what I always thought I should or would do? What if the thing I'm called to do seems counter to everything I've known my whole life? And am I willing to step out and do something that the Lord is calling me to do despite my fear, despite what other people think about me? And so as I look back at my life and the things, God, the, the things that God has called me to, there's always been an element of nervousness and fear when I go to step out in obedience. And sometimes that takes a little longer than other times. Um, but I'm grateful that none of these things required head shaving or street theater. <laughs> um, but in every case where I was called to step out, I, I wondered if I was equipped to do what was being asked of me. I think that's a natural question. Whether it was becoming a parent or serving on a priest team or leading a youth group at our previous church, going to grad school in my 40s while working full-time, maybe even joining the women's teaching team here at LifePoint. <laughs> um, honestly, I wasn't 100% ready to do any of those things. But that's the thing, isn't it? You don't need to be 100% confident or ready because in that case, how much would I need to rely on the Lord to do the thing? So I need to lean on him as Ezekiel does so that I can step out and trust that I'm following his call. Leaning on him helps me persist through the challenges that are going to come, whatever the call is. So I ask you ladies to be thinking as we go through this evening in our discussion time, where might God be calling you to step out in obedience? All right.
Then we move on to Ezekiel 8. Well, that's what I'm doing. I'm moving on to Ezekiel 8. God, God takes the prophet on a heavenly tour of the temple. So we're back up in the heavens now. Um, and they're in Jerusalem, and they're going to see what's going on. Now, we learned in the Exodus study earlier this year that the temple is literally God's house. Um, his holy being dwelt above the ark in between the cherubim figures within the inmost part of the temple that was called the Holy of Holies. The courtyard of the temple was where people brought the sacrifices to the priests um, in order to be atoned and reconciled with the Lord. So as you moved inward through the temple, there were a series of washings that priests had to go through um, as they entered each next holy place, and they only entered the Holy of Holies once a year, and only one of them did that. You didn't just wander in there and hang out in the Holy of Holies, because guess what? You die. So what God shows Ezekiel was desecration of his temple of the worst kind. The people had drawn pictures on the walls of animals and what my translation called detestable things. It's pictures of the things they're worshiping. And the elders of Israel were burning incense, which when you think about Leviticus 10, they tell a story about Aaron's sons burning unauthorized incense before the Lord, and it results in their deaths. So all these years later, it's happening again with regularity and with complete disregard of the rules that God has put into place. Next, God and Ezekiel go to the gate of the temple where they see women weeping um, for Tammuz, a fertility god. With each thing that God shows Ezekiel, he's like, but wait, it gets worse. Um, next, they see men in the courtyard with their backs turned on the temple and facing the sun, which they are worshiping. God says to Ezekiel in chapter 8, verse 17, Do you see this, son of man? Is it a trivial thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me to anger repeatedly? God uses the word repeatedly. These are not one-time sins. These are not mild sins, if we were to measure them on like a sin scale. Um, Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5 says, This is what the Lord God says. This is Jerusalem. I have placed her at the center of the nations with the lands around her, but she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. God is saying their sin is greater than that of the people in the surrounding countries. Israel is supposed to be God's chosen people and serve as a light to the world. And here they are in a spiritual state worse than their neighbors. So often, it seems that sin starts with a wrong attitude and placing our trust in something other than God. Way back in Genesis, God tells Cain that his attitude is not right. In Genesis 4, we read that Cain was angry about the God's Cain was angry about God's favor on his brother Abel's sacrifice. God says to Cain in verse 7, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Instead, Cain didn't rule over the sin. He murders his brother. In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. 
The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of flesh cannot please God. Cain's mind was clearly governed by the flesh, and so is Israel here governed by the flesh. And they've been there for a while. It didn't happen overnight. Oh, sorry, I lost my place. The study book points out that this self-reliant attitude began almost 400 years earlier when David conducts a census of his army, right? A demonstration of pride and faith in his army and not in the Lord. But we can see that Israel's attitude problems began way earlier, almost from their very beginning, um, as they struggled with faithfulness and trust in God. God delivers them from slavery through a series of plagues that devastate their captive country, Egypt. Um, But just days later, they're complaining in the wilderness. Lack of trust is crouching at the door. And they let it in as they begin to say that they wish that God had left them in Egypt. that 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 they were better off there. Moses must intercede on their behalf because their complaining makes God angry. Not long after, they reach Mount Sinai and sinful fear crouches at their door. The Israelites let that fear in and they engage in idol worship of the golden calf and all kinds of lewd behavior on the mountain in what seems like mere minutes after God's miraculous deliverance. So now here in Ezekiel, all these years later, we see that sin is no longer crouching at the door but has completely taken over. Over the course of all these years, they made choice after choice that led them to this place of abomination and total disregard for God and his laws. God had warned the earlier generations way back in Deuteronomy what would happen to them if they didn't obey and follow him. And now he's warning this generation that it's really happening. Judgment and death, they're coming. God has been patient He has been forgiving for hundreds of years. Multiple prophets have been enlisted to warn them. And yet, here are the elders desecrating the temple where God dwells and literally turning their backs on him to worship other things. So look, it can be easy for us as we sit here and read these these verses thousands of years later to look with a little bit of a judgmental attitude on Israel's behavior and think, Israel, what is wrong with you? (laughs) And yet, how easily do I complain? How easily do I put my trust in my own abilities to manage a situation rather than putting my trust in God? I want to be clear. We will sin. It's in our DNA. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what Israel is engaging in And what we want to avoid is unrepentant sin. We must be ruthless with identifying sin in our lives and then repenting of it. Practically speaking, we've got to pray. I need to ask God to show me if there are areas of sin that I haven't tackled or noticed yet. What am I turning a blind eye to? Are there things I'm justifying or rationalizing is not that bad, but really are sinful? Am I putting my trust in something other than God, like other people or my work? If I ask the Lord to reveal those things, the Holy Spirit will show me. 
Consider praying scripture. Psalms 139 verses 23 and 24 tell us, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And as you find those places where maybe repentance is necessary, ask God to restore your relationship with him. He longs for closeness with you. He wants to be, he longed for closeness with Israel. I love Psalms 51 as a prayer of of repentance. Verses one through four tell us, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my wrongdoings and my sin is constantly before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But then verses 10 through 12 shift into reconciliation. And we hear, create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. I need to keep an eye out on my attitude and where I'm placing my trust. (laughs) Got some late show going on. But shifting into prayer and keeping a heart of gratitude can help keep the attitude, help, help keep me with my attitude in check and ensure that my eyes stay on God and not on myself or something else. Sin may crouch at the door, but it's my job to shut the door and keep it out. I must rule over it. And so, by way of confession to you ladies, um, because I like to have examples of things, when we were in the Roman study earlier this year, God revealed to me where I had built up some resentment in a couple of my relationships. Sin was for sure crouching at the door. Maybe it even had a foot or two shoved through. Now, in all honesty, I'm still working on those relationships and working to resolve the things that led to the resentment. It's a work in progress. Um, But as I continue to deal with some of those challenges, I have to keep asking God for forgiveness and also for wisdom so that I know how to navigate those relationships um, in a more honest way. If I let that resentment fester and grow, it can turn into something else. And then how Christ-like am I being? So where is sin perhaps crouching at your door? Are there areas that you know you need to address? Sisters, Lay them before the Father today. He wants to forgive you, and he wants a restored relationship with you. All right. It gets really fun in these last chapters here. Um, We see that God is done waiting. D-O-N-E, done. Ezekiel 5 verse 9 says, And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. And in verse 11, he says, I definitely will also withdraw and my eye will have no pity and I also will not spare. A third of you will die by plague or perish by famine among you. A third will fall by the sword around you and a third I will scatter to every wind and I will unsheath a short sword behind you. In chapter seven, verse two, he gets really dramatic and he's like the end. 
The end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now upon you, and I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. All right, he goes on for quite a bit there, but the idea is pretty clear. Um, God says that though he has relented in the past, he's not going to now. They are going to go through this judgment. In Ezekiel 6, verse 10, he says, And they will know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity on them. There are many who will endure this judgment. They will not escape the destruction or the death. This is not just judgment. Keep in mind, this is the consequence of unrepentant sin. Remember, God's not doing like a gotcha here where he's surprising people with these consequences. He's been saying for years since Deuteronomy, that what would happen if they turned away from him? And here they are. The time is up. In Ezekiel 10, we get another picture of the Godmobile in action. But in a painful display, Ezekiel watches God's presence leave the temple. In verse 18, we read, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The people of Israel had turned their backs on God. They brought in so much sin, he can't even be in their presence any longer. He's leaving. In our discussion time, we'll see the study book spends quite a bit of time looking at the pause that occurs here. So when the Godmobile does move on, it moves on to Babylon, where the exiles are, foreshadowing that when Jesus comes, God's holy presence is no longer tied to the temple. He goes where he's worshipped, and that doesn't have to be only in Jerusalem anymore. But because God is rich in mercy, he leaves Ezekiel with hope. God shares a promise in Ezekiel in chapter 11, verses 17 through 20. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. The judgment will not be for nothing. God wants people to come to him. He longs to be in relationship with the people. The trials, the destruction, the consequences, they're all to bring the people back. There's a purpose in everything that God is doing. He's going for a new spirit, for new hearts, before he brings them back to the land. Sisters, trials have purposes. Now look, not every trial is the result of sin. But every trial does allow for us to draw near to God regardless of the reason for the trial So I encourage you, ask yourself, is there something in your life that you haven't identified or dealt with? And is any current trial you're going through, could it be the result of sin? Ultimately, God's heart is to bring you back to him. It doesn't matter how far gone you may be. Turn to him and ask for forgiveness. 
As a parent, I've told my kids that 90% of parenting is anticipating the accident. So whether it's the water glass they placed too close to the edge or the kid poised at the top of the slide while sitting on their little bike, um, I'm, <laughs> which is real, that's no, no joke, um, I'm constantly warning them of impending disaster. Move that glass into the middle of the table. Get off that bike before you go down that slide. And I don't think she did. Um, so often, they don't listen to my warnings, am I right? Right. The reality is that sometimes they have to fall at the bottom of the slide. Sometimes they have to clean up the spilled water, hopefully to learn next time not to make those same mistakes. God calls out to us, look out. So take a look and see if you see trials coming that are serving as a warning or a wake-up call for you. So my challenge to you all this week, okay, is first, Where is God calling you to step out in courage and faith to try something new? It likely doesn't involve shaving your head, so thumbs up. Um, But are you being called to lead a group, to teach, to serve in a new area of ministry? Maybe it's something like applying for a new or different job, reaching out to a friend or family member to invite them to church. Listen to that call and step out. Second, Are you ruthless in identifying areas of sin in your life, even potential sin? What trouble spots do you need to hand over to God in prayer? What does your attitude look like? Who are you trusting in each day? Is sin crouching at your door? You must rule over it. And last, are you facing or experiencing the consequences of sin in your life right now? Turn your face towards our merciful God. Remember, he's lingering, waiting for you. There is nothing, hear me, nothing that you've done that he will not forgive you for. And so I may not wipe away those consequences, and you may still have to walk through those, but let God walk with you through them. Walk with the strength, peace, and grace that only he can provide. All right, and because I love when scripture is put into a song, because it helps me remember it, and then when I read it, I hear it, um, I want to close with a little chorus of Psalm 51, all right? Um, So as we close, I want you to sing these verses. If you hopefully pick them up, I didn't get a thing printed, so my apologies. But it's like literally you could open your Bible to Psalm 51, and you'd almost be right there. And seeing these as a prayer of forgiveness, of repentance, and of restoration. Okay, the first part, we're going to sing through twice. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. And so you sing that twice, all right? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then the little chorus is, cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Oh, uh-huh. 